the part fiction. Hello everyone. I am jumping in at the start of this podcast to let you know via my iPhone, because that's what I'm recording on, because I don't have my mic with me, because I'm in New Mexico at the moment, location scouting for our next film. I've just been informed by the PR company behind Serrano, the fantastic film, that their release date has been pushed back from today to February the 25th, which means obviously it's too late for us not to put the Joe Wright and Erica Schmidt podcast episode out, but it does mean we can move the Peter Dinklage and Kelvin Harrison Jr. double bill to around the release date of February the 25th. So I'm just jumping in here to tell you that. So there we go. I'm going to carry on my location scouting. It is amazing here in New Mexico. The sights are beautiful. The backdrops are incredible and the people, oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell you more. For now, I can't. That's it. Enough from me. Time for the main event. Hello and welcome to episode 258 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk films, filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and <laughs> everything in between, <laughs> how to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to fuck it up in our very, very humble, humble opinion. opinion. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls to the show today. And what a treat we have for you. Yes, it is the return of Dom Lenoir. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> not only do we have Dom Lenoir, but we have on the fantastic, and he's a bit of a hero for me, wonderful director, it is Joe Wright. Ooh. How cool is that, Dom? It's extremely cool. I mean, he's one of those kind of filmmakers where you watch these massive, epic, Oscar-winning blockbusters and you think, how do they do it? And here he is, <laughs> telling us. <laughs> here he is. Um, if you don't know Joe Wright's work, and I'm sure you do, uh, he's the director of Pride and Prejudice, uh, the Kira Knightley Oscar-winning uh, movie Hannah, uh, starring Saoirse Ronan, uh, Pan, starring Hugh Jackman, Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman. I think he was Oscar-nominated. Did he Oscar win for that? Probably. Uh, in our minds, he did. In our minds, he did. Yes. The Soloist, Woman in the Window, and Anna Karenina. And of course, the film we are here to talk about, the Peter Dinklage starring Serrano. Serrano. Oh. Yes. It's surrenderful. <laughs> uh, it is, it really is. <laughs> we will come back to that. You dare come back, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, this is so great. It's not only have we got uh, Joe Wright, but this double header, Caesars, have uh, the wonderful screenwriter as well, Erica Schmidt, joining. Uh, she joins afterwards. So we'll come to her in a bit. But first, Dom, what did we chat to Joe Wright about? We talked about how he likes to do lots of rehearsals, the craft of directing, and why he uses the same crew from production to production. He talks about working with up-and-comers like Saoirse Ronan, how he gets performances out of them, but also how he gets performances out of established stars, such as Peter Dinklage or the fantastic Hayley Bennett, who stars in Serrano, but also Dom, uh, you're a big fan of her. She has starred in some other brilliant films and TV recently, including The Girl on the Train, Marley and Me, The Magnificent Seven, and last year's Oscar contender, The Devil All the Time. 
So she's done some really good films. And she's brilliant in Serrano as well. She's pretty much, well, she is the affection of uh, Peter Dinklage's eyes as Serrano de Bergerac. It is a retelling of the movie Serrano de Bergerac. It's a musical. It is wonderful. It is beautiful to look at. Joe also talks about what he looks for from his crew and the teams he works with and how he collaborates with them. Oh my gosh. I, I love talking to Joe. I love talking to established directors like this as well as indie film directors, but I love listening to their, you know, how they feel, mm. what's going on in their minds. The pressure behind it all, the, the the immense feeling of you know you can cast who you like, you can kind of make sh films you want to make. Mm. It's the pressure's harder now, yep. you know. It's, it's your vision, and I think he's done an amazing job. I think the thing I like as well is that I, I feel like a lot of these very high-end filmmakers, like maybe maybe they had these kind of interviews when they were you know more in the the early indie world, but a lot of the time they don't really get asked about their process. And mm. you know, this is this is such an interesting sort of opportunity to to find out things that that you just don't see that much from them, because it's usually sort of press junkets and the sort of you know media and trivia and you know all the sort of stuff that goes with a, a big release. But it's really great to get in, into the details of the, the filmmaking process. Oh, it really is. It really two is. great hosts. Yeah, that's that's basically <laughs> what it is, Dom. Um, <laughs> Before we get to the episode, though, Dom, uh, there's some interesting news this week. We put out a wrap-up. Uh, it's out. It's called The Wrap-Up. We put it out every Sunday. If you're not getting that, then do sign up. Look in your spam folder. <laughs> well, look in your spam folder first, but it's probably not there yet if you haven't signed up. Do sign up because we do. We curate news of the week from various platforms like IMDb or Hollywood Report or Variety, and we put the best ones that we think will suit you in there. Uh, which could be kit of the week, it could be latest uh, information where you can get funding or the latest productions that are happening. If you if you want to sign up, link to that is in the show notes. And also, you can also sign up to the Patreon, which uh, goes to Charles's holiday fund. <laughs> <laughs> Nervous laughter. Yeah, no. <laughs> that £26 goes really far. But you can, the Patreon, we have loads of behind the scenes bits and pieces on there and it's only going to grow. So those of you who have joined, we're about to put a load of new stuff out there, including our Desert Island DVDs. Dom is going to be our first person on how exciting in the wrap-up this week which comes out every sunday by the way there was an article which i thought would be really good for us to have a chat about and it the title was from the hollywood reporter why production companies in 2022 will need to get big or go home and i found this really interesting because there's a lot of huge companies at the moment that are buying up the other companies which is kind of taken away from Indie films, a lot. Uh, let me explain a little bit. So there's a massive merger between Discovery and AT&T at Warner Media. That is happening. Amazon have bought up MGM for about 8.45 billion. And Reese Witherspoon's company, who make uh, Big Little Lies, sold her company for 900 million to Blackstone Group, as well as loads of others that keep happening all the time. And the BBC have been doing this for quite a few years now, buying up production companies in the UK, They've, they took control of House Productions, who made Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, Batch Star of Brexit, The Uncivil War, and the new miniseries Sherwood. Uh, they also bought out Cloak and Well Films, who made uh, TV's Mis Misfits and The End of the Fucking World, and uh, Lookout Point as well, which produced Gentleman's, Gentleman Jack. So this is happening a lot. Mm. I suppose it was interesting. I wanted to talk to you, Dom, and uh, what our thoughts were to our listeners about what we feel about this and how does this affect 
us as independent filmmakers? Well, it's it's a tricky one because uh, I mean, as a as a viewer, <laughs> in a way, it's it's quite good because it means that a lot of production companies that are putting out good ta- content suddenly have a lot of funding to to make you know big productions. But then, as an indie mm-hmm. filmmaker. It makes things a lot more challenging because, I mean, already the industry is kind of going in a, in a direction and it has been for some time where the, those kind of mid Hollywood indies have either shrunk or gone up in price. So you have these kind of blockbusters or the studios with all, with all the money and then it sort of goes this big gap up down to indie. And so in, in a way for the, low, the lower end, it could be shrinking that even further down in terms of making those low budget things on your own. If you can't sort of rely on production companies because they're being bought out, I suppose it makes things more challenging for the filmmaker. It does. What it does do is open up this new space, though. It opens up a space of independent financiers who are looking to get into the film world space. Mm. Because now all these big companies have been bought up. They don't need necessarily the money of uh, these financiers. And certainly not, hey, maybe one mil, three mil, uh, 250 grand, whatever you're making your film for, Mm. or 20 grand. At the moment, that space has opened up because of it. I mean, obviously... It means you've got to be really know your stuff when you go there to these investors. You have to know what the recruitment schedule is going to be like. You have to know everything here for your investors to back mm. you. But I feel like there's an opportunity now. I, th- I feel it's taken away quite a lot. It means it's going to be tough as hell for us to get in at the BBC or get in at Amazon Studios or Netflix because they don't need us right now. They're making no. their own stuff and making lots of money from it. Well, they don't know that they need us, more importantly. More importantly, they do need us, but they don't realise that yet. Yet. So therefore, we've now got to be clever about what we're doing with our films. And me and you, we, you know, we want to make be making movies in the three million range upwards. But that's the hundred really million. <laughs> <laughs> 100 million. But, then, but, but yeah, you, you're right. Between, you're right. It, it, it's it, hard it, it to just get opens that money. up. It is. It opens up a whole a whole bunch more options in terms of you know what you can do, where you can shoot, what kind of crew and cast you you have access to, and it, it, it is. I, I think all filmmakers, well, m- most filmmakers in, enjoy moving up a certain point in terms of budgets, and you know those ranges are uh, yeah, they do open a lot of options. Yep. So look, it is difficult. It's always difficult to make your indie films. There's no question about it. But if you're making that transition now from maybe a first, second, whatever, or you want to start making a million pound movie, don't necessarily recommend that. But hey, if it happens to you, go for it. Now you've got to think further outside the box. Hmm. You've really got to find the project that is going to take off, that is going to do well, that is going to make money back to your investors. It's so important to think about that in your long-term career. Hmm. At the same time, hey, if you've got something you want to make, go make it. You know, never stop anyone going to make something. But for us to get into that league now, it's it, things are changing and we've got to adapt with the time. So stay abreast of it all. Do read the trades. It's important. And to help you, obviously, there's the wrap-up because they're all in there and we've curated it for you. But if you don't want to do that, then you do it yourself. You know what I mean? But it is important to know what's going on in this industry because it's changing all the time, especially uh, with the finance side of things, tax breaks, how Mm. you get money back, where you claim it, how you do all that. It's so important. Right. Should we get to our first guest? Yes. He is right. He is right on the money and he's right here for you right now. It is, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Myself and Don will be back in the gap to introduce Erica properly. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy the fantastic Joe Wright. (laughs) 
Hello, buddy. How are you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. You've got amazing skulls there behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all part of the spirit, keeping oh, the... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Keeping the spirits close. Yeah, you've got to. You've got to. We're talking about like masks and stuff with, with actors, and I think it's fascinating how amazing you are able to pull masks off actors, you know, and you get these amazing performances out of people, especially sort of child actors, you know, with Saoirse and, and not necessarily a child actor here, but with Hayley, you know, when you've, you've worked with so many new, I say new, they've still worked, but you've seemed to pull these mm. amazing performances out of actors. Uh, you know, mm. Hayley Bennett is perfect here, you know, in Serrano. What is it that yeah. you, you you like to do with up and coming actors, young actors that you, that they can trust you? I don't know. I think I try to make people feel relaxed and kind of supported and, mm -hmm. and seen and like they have ownership of the movie. Um, we always do two or three weeks rehearsals before any shoot. And that's a period of eating lunch and drinking tea, really. Um, <laughs> and telling and telling stories, you know, telling stories of our of our lives, of our childhoods, and and you know, and so I think that really helps as well. Yeah, I think the rehearsal period is fascinating because you, you with all your films, you like to rehearse, right? Oh, That's kind oh, of your your thing. It's like spending that time with your actors, and again, then like that trust must come from there, right? Do you, do you kind of demand it in a way? Not yeah, demand is yeah, the wrong yeah. word, but it's important for you. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, unfortunately, traditionally, actors in film don't get paid for rehearsals. So um, sometimes, you know, if they're busy actors, the agents try and, you know, slide another film in there. Mm. Um, they don't want them to rehearse with no money. Exactly. They go, well, I could make some more money out of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But no, I do. I, I kind of, you know, if they don't rehearse, then they don't do the job. Right. I love that. I think it's really important. I suppose it's very important as well when you're doing sort of long set pieces where there's a lot at stake uh, and there's a lot of moving parts as well. Because um, yeah. you don't want to be going through like a, a seven minute sequence with, you know, 50 extras or that kind of scenario. And then and then someone sort of doesn't know what they're doing halfway through it. Yeah. I mean, it, we do some blocking of actual scenes, but it's less it's less about that and more about kind of getting to know each other. Um, and for the actors to get to know each other's rhythms as well. Um, mm. I'm very kind of keen on the idea of how rhythm can determine the shape uh, of a, a, a scene. Um, and so we work a lot on rhythm and work a lot on kind of, um, I don't quite go as far as trust exercises, but it's, mm. it's bordering on that. It's bordering. If someone went, would you just mind standing behind me? I'm just going to fall backwards. You'd go, okay, let's go with it. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's that fine balance, isn't it? But here yeah. with Serrano, obviously it's a musical as well. So you need rehearsal mm. you know this is dance you know numbers with all your fantastic uh, choreography in this and the fantastic dances you had yeah the rehearsals in this were great because we we took over this theater um that we were you know in the town of notto where we were shooting mm. and um and we had different rooms for different activities so we had like the drama room and the stunts room and the dance room and the singing room um and the actors kind of had a schedule where they moved between these different activities so and then there was also costume and makeup in the same building so they could do you know uh tests and all of that stuff um 
it was kind of it was like running a, a big old theater workshop oh, i love that did you find there was any any challenge sort of incorporating those those different elements together no because i think they were all focused on the same goal mm. which is you know to to express the the nature of these characters and and the intention of the drama and so you know if you're working with i don't know kelvin harrison jr who's playing mm-hmm. christian if you're working with him you know on a, on the on a scene and then how does he express himself physically how does he express himself in in fighting it's all expression of the same soul and that's gorgeous I, and that's fascinating because you t- i don't know whether this is true but maybe you come from the acting background i know you done bits of work on the acting side and certainly yeah. smaller roles when you started out um yeah, did you no, think that helped that helps you connect to actors because it's not easy you know you've worked with some major superstars and you have to connect with them all i think you have to just understand um and this is maybe something i understand through having done it myself that acting is not witchcraft you know there's an element of a large element of craft about it what actors are often looking for are very very practical notes and i think a lot of directors who haven't had that experience um or you know experienced directing actors in theater or or whatever um they're slightly afraid of acting they don't that it's it's somehow this um this strange thing that that is somewhere between you know possession and lying mm. and then like say you just have to pick that out as the director you know because are you looking for falsities are you looking for people who are actually lying so you're trying to get them to tell the truth within their performances very much so and getting them to let their guard down as well though a lot of actors we all really whether we're actors or not have certain habits that we've formed as part of a defense mechanism you know how we want to be perceived rather than how we actually are possibly um and so uh so it's about figuring out what the individual's defense mechanism is and and then trying to persuade them to remove that and allow themselves them true their true selves to 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 come through their true creativity to come through mm-hmm. and that must happen in rehearsals as well which is great because you've got that time to do exactly. it. a lot of directors exactly. don't get that yeah. and it's great you do that i must come from your theater background as well i think also a lot of actors you know there are character actors but then there are actors who 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 believe that what makes them successful is how to kind of think about you know what looks good and they don't need to you know they can just let go of that especially with, with, with women often you know they, they've also been told to kind of wear this nice dress and look sexy and stand over there and their kind of um their craft is often ignored yeah and i think i think it is that on authenticity that's that's so very important to, to feel what an actor is going through and making sure that you that connection is is apparent on screen and uh, i think that's something that's definitely apparent in in all of your work actually well but when you're trying to get like i said performance over a song because it's it's kind of one thing getting that performance out of someone when they're either on stage or on screen but now in a song you're kind of elongating performances or thoughts or motion how are you straddling those lines well the actors and i work with a very brilliant woman called mary hammond um Mm -hmm. who uh ran the rada musical theater course and she taught us a lot about singing as if you were speaking you know how to turn lyrics into 
into a, a form of sung dialogue, really, which is quite different from when you're, you know, working on, I don't know, albums or songs or, you know, the kind of musical medium, the musical form requires you really to be acting through singing. And um, and it was it was very interesting. I mean, a lot of the, one of the really interesting things I find, this might be boring to other people, but I find it really fascinating that emotion is delivered through vowels, right? Mm. Uh, not consonants. Rhythm is delivered through consonants, but motion comes through vowels, which is why people always think that the English are emotionless, right? Especially, you know, in the 40s and 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 50s, because we all talked with very clipped um, vowels. We didn't, you know, we, people think of it as being talking with clipped consonants, but actually it's talking with very clipped vowels. And so that means that we come across as less emotional, whereas Americans talk with very long extended vowels. Mm. Um, and so we possibly think of them as being over emotional. So with singing, you're working with the vowels predominantly. And that's why there's so much more room for emotional um, expression is because it's the sound of a vowel that gives you that emotion. Mm. Is that what you look for with actors then as well, in terms of being able to get performances out? Because the performances you've uh, that you've sort of pulled out in Serrano are gorgeous. You know, it's just delightful to watch. And they're this, they're all, almost in their own wonderful bubble of their emotional ball. And I love mm. that. I loved how it just continued their emotional arcs. Um, mm. I think that's really fascinating here. And I, I wonder how, well, I suppose it is part of what you're saying here. And you look for that though, when you're trying to find new performers, you know, when you obviously you saw Haley on stage, but with your cast with Calvin. I look for actors who are skilled. I wouldn't hire a, an electrician who wasn't skilled with <laughs> electrics, you know? Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, and and it's fine if that electrician is self-taught, but I'd kind of prefer it if they'd gone to college. Mm. Um, and it's the same with actors, you know. Sure, I'm looking for an emotional um, availability. And most importantly, I'm looking for an imagination. I'm looking for someone who has a really strong, dramatic imagination. You, you mentioned Saoirse Ronan before. Mm. Even at 11, that kid had incredible imagination specifically for acting. But I'm also looking for people who have a, an ability, a level of skill and practice that means that those imaginings or those emotions can be uh, expressed dramatically. And, um, and, and that's to do with an understanding of the craft, you know, um, mm. an understanding of what words do, an understanding of rhythm. There's a note which I give often to actors, which is to, which is to pick up your cues. Mm -hmm. um, that means, you know, um, don't pause between the last actor's line and your line, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that drives me mad um, uh, because there's this kind of modern idea uh, or contemporary idea that you have to, you know, someone will say their line and then you say your line after a long thought about what you might say. But I don't, you know, I'm I'm making up what I say to you now as I go along mm -hmm. and I'll answer as quickly as I can and I'll often interrupt you uh, or you'll interrupt me or whatever. And that's and part of that rehearsal process, uh, going back to that, is about kind of understanding each other's rhythms and being 
comfortable enough with each other to interrupt each other. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you want to do all of that in rehearsal. You don't want to be spending time doing that on set when you've got, you know, three scenes to complete in 11 hours. Do you ever find any kind of conflict between if you've got like a particularly visual sequence um, that's very reliant on, uh, you know, a set of shots or, or camera versus the actor's uh, wanting a certain level of freedom to kind of express themselves and, and the two things are, are maybe not in the same same page? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I do. But I usually find that there's a solution that suits us both. The, the, the problem is, is that you, you can never force an actor to do something they don't want to do, right? Because mm. if you do, then they'll be resistant and, uh, you know, at worst, resentful, and then they'll never do what you ask them to do truthfully. You know, they won't be able to take ownership of it mm-hmm. and inhabit it. So you have to find a way of saying, okay, well, we've both got something we need. So how do we find where those two needs meet? And um, and the only, you know, I've only ever got not got on with about two actors, maybe. And, uh, and both of those were people who were unwilling to step on the train and come on the journey um, mm. and refused to, you know, compromise. Is it the same with your crew as well? Obviously it's very, with acting and working with actors, are you similar? I know you like to work with a lot of the same crew, a lot on a lot of your projects. It might have been different on Serrano because it was, you know, in the pandemic and you were shooting in Italy, but but is it the same? Are you still thinking the same way with your crew as well in a similar vein? Yeah, very much so, especially with the HODs and, you know, Sarah Greenwood, my production designer, and I have worked together since I was 26, so that's a very long time. Um, and Seamus McGarvey, my DP, and I have worked together since atonement and actually he shot some short films for me when i was in my 20s as well jacqueline duran my costume designer has been with me since pride and prejudice so that so yes the answer is um i I, i've worked with the same people over and over and we are collaborators you know there's Mm. no such thing as a joe wright film without them and occasionally i you know i i they're not available or i have to try it you know uh for whatever reason work with someone else and and that's interesting. Uh, I learn stuff, you know, new stuff, and then I can bring that back to the family. If you like. And what is it that you feel that you can keep working with the same people? What are tips for our filmmakers out there who are going, how, how do you sustain those relationships? What is it about your connection and, and keeping the togetherness of a team? How, how do you do it? I don't know. It's really difficult, frankly, um, sometimes, especially when they get really big and famous and then they you know, <laughs> yeah. want to go off and make big fancy movies and I'm, you know, I, 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 I've come to understand that the types of films I make are never gonna be the big budget. You know, I'd be useless at doing, well, I tried one once uh, at a $180 million movie and it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So I always, you know, my films are are kind of medium size, you know, I, I like the kind of 30, 35 million dollar budget and they're getting offers to make movies at 180 and so they get paid more and it's a longer job Mm -hmm. and it's you know and it's a much much bigger canvas as well i think it just comes down to the fact that we do all love each other and we know each other really well and there's a kind of i don't know i have a huge respect for them and i think they're the best they're the best in the business and um 
And so I always want to work with them. And and for some reason, you'd have to ask them. They they keep coming back to me too. That's because you make fantastic films. Could you just briefly sort of talk us through a little bit about those collaborations with the, I mean, the cinematography and, and the set design, especially in, in this film and the, the music all work very much in harmony, I, I thought, to sort of keep a very relentless pace that keeps you sort of, you know, powering through the story with the characters. Um, maybe just a little bit about that kind of that kind of collaborations and how you start working with them once you get the script and you start getting them on board the film. It's very different with all of them. With a lot of directors, the DP is the first person to come on board. With me, um, the designer is the first person really to come on board. And Sarah Greenwood and I uh, start discussing the script and we have a, a secret weapon who is this incredible um, picture researcher um, and so we send the script to him and, and um, start talking to him. And he'll send us thousands and thousands of visual references, paintings of the period, but also kind of contemporary photography, a very, very wide palette. And then we start sort of picking photos out from that and going, oh, I like this color or I like this atmosphere or and so Sarah and I start like that and then we so we're just kind of selecting these images and then I have a notice board there you see and we we magnet you know uh, we put we stick them to the board with magnets and we just start talking about it and breaking it down and and then location scouting as early as possible because I think it never works for me to try and force the script onto a location. What works for me is something more kind of site specific. So I'll I'll start that location scouting and I'll I'll be looking at, oh, this is nice. I like this place or I like that place or this has an atmosphere I find interesting. And then I'll actually write those locations into the script and change the script to suit the locations mm. so that it has a more uh, cohesive because and especially now, I, I, you know, I made the prior to Cyrano, the last three or four movies were very, very studio based. And so therefore you can just, you know, suit the, build the set to suit your script. But I'm more interested in response, responding to, the, to what we find rather than forcing ourselves on any location. Uh, and then Seamus, the DP, and I start looking at locations. And we spend, Seamus and I spend about two weeks prior to shooting. If I can do it after rehearsals, I will. And we spend about two weeks going through the script, storyboarding some sequences uh, if they're very kind of uh, montage based. Um, storyboards for me are really about how one shot works with an, next to another shot rather than about drawing a long shot that develop, you know, if that makes sense. It's more about editing, uh, I guess. And then we shot list. And then we also, we, we ask Sarah to give us plans of every set. And we talk about the direction of the light and we talk about blocking. So we have a kind of plan that is not 100%, but a plan that is about 75%. And then, uh, yeah, and then every morning I get up and write a short list before I go to set and we discuss everything and rehearsals and, you know, all of that stuff. Brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Joe Wright, we do have to let you go. I'd love to chat with you longer because you're fascinating and we, we <laughs> love Sirania. We really did. And yeah. We've loved your career and you're a fantastic filmmaker. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, yeah, thank appreciate you, Joe. Really appreciate it. All appreciate the best. It. Good luck with it all. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Thank, thank you. you. So th there we have it. That was the fantastic Joe Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, that was all the time they could give us. But hey, 
what more did we need? More time. But I'm not, well, I'm the, the key, the, the key when you need more time is ask them a 182 part question like I did. <laughs> it was amazing. Your last question. We got a little notification at the side saying this is make this your last question. So Dom asked that question and then he answered for about five minutes. You can see them all going, no, he needs to finish. It was brilliant and he answered it so well. It was. We we actually learned a lot from that. And uh, yeah, but uh, sorry, apologies to the, to the PR company on that one. Yeah. Real apologies. Uh, thank you so much for letting us do it, by yeah, the way. It was uh, Sarah Pendergrast and everyone at DDAPR, yeah. thank you. But, uh, Dom, just wanted to touch on there what you mentioned about the craft of directing and how important it is. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we learned a lot. I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about processes and, and how people prepare. And I think one of the most fascinating things that, that sort of came from this discussion is how important the, the production designer is in his process. Uh, I mean, mm. you know, for most filmmakers, it's a, it's a very, very important part of the process. But for him, it's almost the starting point for a lot of his uh, his work on the script and, and going into pre-production. So that and the rehearsals and how he sort of works with actors, it's all fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's so important that your team around you gets your vision and therefore it's, it's up to you to show them the vision you want uh, and to explain that clearly. Uh, it's so important to have your vision and let other people run with that and mm. hopefully they bring better things back to you uh, which sounds like the case here right next up Joe. is a fantastic screenwriter right. Is the fantastic screenwriter Erica Schmidt, who started off uh, writing and directing for the comedy company uh, Laughing Stock, and then she directed many stage shows, but she'd never written a screenplay before she wrote Serrano. Yeah, so she talks about how she adapted and that process of moving from theatre script into screenplay, uh, and also what it was like working with Joe. She also goes into details about what happens when you get notes on your screenplay. Are they good? Are they bad? Uh, and she goes into depth about how she wrote it. It's fantastic. Uh, me and Dom had a, a great chat with her. She was marvellous. Sit back, relax, and enjoy myself and Dom chatting to Erica Schmidt. So Erica, can we can we go back to the uh, the start of this? Like, first of all, we really enjoyed the movie. Uh, it was a fantastic uh, achievement. So where did where did this all begin for you? Well, I always loved the Edmund Rostand play, um, and I was kind of obsessed with it. And I wanted to do an adaptation for the stage that I imagined to be through composed, um, not a musical, but really kind of a, a play with music. And uh, I kind of had two two points of entry. One was that I wanted to do the play without Cyrano having a false nose. And I, I mean, not just the kind of mask of the nose, but also to just never speak about what it is that he feels is physically unlovable about himself. And then my other kind of curiosity or interest in the play was the character of Roxanne. I, I felt like she's amazing, but she didn't have kind of the agency that I wanted her to have. It, specifically with the end, I felt like she should be angry or she should ask him why she'd been lied to for 15 years and what kind of love is that and I wanted to know what he would say if she if she asked him that rather than in the original where he speaks about Moliere and then he goes mm. to fight his devil those were really my my questions at the beginning and I conceived it to be very, very small, to, to just have 10 actors and be kind of incredibly in, intimate and almost cinematic. You know, we, we had a letterbox around the stage and I was trying to make it modern and spare and almost cinematic, realistic. That was the original 
way in. I think, you know, what you mentioned with the nose, especially like that definitely came off with, with Peter's character and, and, you know, the film in, in, in general feels very internalized and, and accessible for, for everyone about their own sort of inner failings or, or lack of, lack of confidence. And Christian's character as well certainly, yeah. certainly has that, which, which we thought was uh, really fascinating. So in terms of adapting, once you'd gone through the, the success of the stage play, what were the challenges and, and maybe some of the things you had to really focus on when you were moving it into a film script? Well, I mean, I'd never written a screenplay before. And like I said, I never I never would have made this my first screenplay. I never would have imagined that it would have become a movie. Um, it, that was all Joe's idea. Uh, he saw the stage play and wanted to make it into a film. And then, you know, I had, like I said, made it very, very spare. Um, and most of the first act was cut. And I also did a, not modern dress, but a kind of indistinct, indistinguishable theatrical period. And Joe wanted it to be very Baroque and he wanted the first act to be back to the Rostand, like huge high style society at the theater. Um, and then move, move forward through the play to the fifth act, which then is almost exactly as it was on stage. It's very um, intimate and, and minimal um, with just a bench as it was on the stage. Uh, so you know, first it was never having written a screenplay before. And then it was kind of trying to see what it was that Joe had liked in what I had done and figure out how to um, keep that while also kind of growing it into the size of the piece that he wanted um, for, the, for the film. And then the, the songs had to be kind of conceived of in a different way for the film because they're quite long and how, and how they can happen and be these kind of windows into the character's soul and feel intimate and personal, but at the same time, keep the action moving, which is mm. very different than what it was on the stage. And that was a real joy to kind of figure out that puzzle. Yeah, it must have been. How incredible. I, it's, I suppose it'd be really interesting to talk about the, the actual going from writing it as a, an actual stage show to the script stage in, in, in slight more detail. I know we've touched on it there. And obviously you'd come from a comedic background anyway. You know, you'd performed, you'd, you'd made stuff in, in comedy in the past sort of with your, with your companies. So it's really interesting to know your journey. It'd be really interesting for us to know what made you sort of want to sort of become this playwright at first. And then we'll talk about the screenwriting side. Well, I mean, I, I direct, I direct plays. That's what mm -hmm. I've been doing for 20 years. So, uh, I usually adapt things that I want to direct. Um, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the stories that I'm interested in, in telling. And, you know, the, the reasons for that are, you know, as different as there are stories to tell. I mean, you know, and this, this one I was really drawn to because of the love of words, um, and the love of poetry and, uh, the, how desperately all of the characters want to be loved and how they fear at the same time that they are themselves unlovable. I just really related to all of those things and really wanted to spend time living in that world. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it really does show. How did you adapt it in the first place then to put that show on were you because you, you, you'd already you know you're already thinking about how to do that what was your process to to dive into that as a writer um you know to turn it into the the sort of brilliant musical that you did well i looked at um every extant translation and adaptation that mm -hmm. exists and kind of went line by line looking at everything that's been done before um and 
trying to find what the heart of what Rostand was saying is uh -huh. like, what are the consistencies? What are the consistent words and what are the consistent phrases and what's the main idea? And then, you know, to filter that I was listening to Bryce and Aaron Dessner's music while I was adapting it. So I was having kind of the richness of their sound against the richness of Rostand and then trying to just take the essence of it and make it as pure as possible. And I love poetry. I, I spend a lot of time looking at poetry. And so I was, try I was trying to be like, um, you know, a monk about making sure that the poetry was the best that it absolutely could be. Like, what, is, what are these letters that he's sending to her that she's committed to memory? Mm -hmm. What are the lines and, and can they be as, as good as um, I can possibly make them, you know? And then Matt Berninger and Karen Besser's lyrics really became the poetry of the piece mm. um, and integrating the trans transition from the spoken word to the sung word um, was really important to me. As again, because it's not in any way a traditional musical. So for these characters to behave on stage in a cinematic way or in a very realistic way and then begin singing is really different than if you're talking about, you know, seeing mm. Cinderella, which we just saw, which is so wonderful the Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, but it's a different style of performance. Um, mm. So I was trying to kind of marry all of those worlds. So, so how does it work from a from a structural point of view? Do you put put together a treatment for this um, off the off the stage one? You sort of do a first draft, and then you Joe sort of adds notes, and then you try and sort of add the music in. Uh, how, how's that kind of collaboration work? No, my stage play had. Uh, all of the lyrics in it, and then also all of the musical cues, because mm. I had chosen which sketches of the Dessners I was using for which parts of the play. So, you know, it, originally they had all of these names like Sharp Town and Coyote and Tisvold, and mm -hmm. um, I would set them into the script. So, and then we would just press play on the, you know, the sound system in the room and they would play underneath the actors. And so then when I first started uh, working on the screenplay with Joe, I took my stage adaptation and put it into screenplay format. And then I had to, you know, start over essentially. And, you know, he asked me to remove all of the track names because he said, you know, they don't, that nobody knows what that is. Um, I was like, oh no, I know what that is. Um, but the lyrics remained, you know, um, and they all stayed. And then uh, structurally that, you know, Rustand has a very clear five act structure that works. It's just like great scaffolding mm -hmm. and that never changed. So it's the, it's the theater, the bakery, the balcony, the war, the convent. And in the stage play I had done like completely different, kind of color worlds and looks for each of those acts. Mm. They were really clearly demarcated. So I'd spent a lot of time thinking about that. And that, I think that was absolutely the, the like the linchpin of the screenplay, because when that is in place, I'm learning as a new screenwriter, when you have the structure, everything else is kind of a lot easier. Yeah, um, yeah. So then, like I had said, Joe wanted a bigger first act. And then the, that, so the dialogue and the kind of all of the characters, we I'd cut Valver from the stage play. So that was all new. And I went back to the Rostand to kind of create that first act for Joe. And then the, the fifth act is really kind of as it was, even the dialogue pretty much. Was there any challenge in terms of where and, and the way that the music 
comes in in terms of the film version as opposed to the, the stage play and it, it, I think as a film like one of the successes is it does feel very seamless the way that the the drama sort of unfolds into the film it's almost like time sort of stops for a moment and then it it sort of right. flows in quite naturally well we Joe and I talked a lot about how he wanted to get into the songs yeah. and then like he would say I need like 10 lines of dialogue that I'm not going to use that I can fade out on so that I can bring up the song, but then the the music itself, you know, Aaron and Bryce Dessner um, did did the score, and it is different than it was in the play. There are elements, but you know, Bryce has spent a lot of time composing music for films, so he he was you know he and Joe did their own thing completely um, mm. for the film. How many different drafts did you do? Was it was it like a, an intense period of time when you're now okay? We are planning to do this as a film. Was it constantly yes. going back and forwards? Talk us through that time, because that's interesting for our screenwriters. Joe said he wanted to make the film of it. Um, he saw the stage play in Connecticut and he called mm -hmm. and said, I want to do this, the film. I want uh, to direct it. I want Peter and Haley in it and I want you to write it. I thought, okay. And then um, <laughs> he said, you know, I'd, I, I function well with deadlines. I'm going to give you a deadline. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so he gave me a deadline and I did the first draft and he called me and he was crying and he said he liked it very, very much. Uh -huh. um, but he had some notes and I said, okay. So then I met with him and Lucas from Working Title and we sat for about 10 hours wow. uh, in a hotel room and went page by page through the script um, really intensively, which, you know, I had never done anything like that before. Um, and he's incredibly detail oriented, Joe is. So some of it was kind of conversations about like why I had made the choices I had made. And then other things were like very detail oriented, like this must, you know, be a certain way, um, which was great. I love, I love notes. So I had all of those notes and then, you know, time, time passed and the pandemic happened and, you know, I was, doing theater and Joe had projects and the band was touring and was, you know, like world tours, t pretty inaccessible. And then uh, Joe called in June of the pandemic and said, uh, it's my birthday mm -hmm. and I really want that second draft. I think I can make this happen. I think I can make it happen in the pandemic. I need you to give me the draft. And I had been working on it, but not I had other things. I, I just, I couldn't really conceive that it was actually going to happen. I don't know mm. how to say that in a way where I don't sound like an idiot, but it's, it's just true. I, you know, I, I'd never done it before. It, it seemed impossible. And so I said, okay, it was the pandemic. So I sat down and I made sure that that second draft was everything I had wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to him 10 days later and he called me and he said, it's ready. Because my email to wow. him was, you know, this is just like, this is between us. Don't share this with anyone. Please give me notes. And he called and said, it's ready. I would like to send it. And I said, oh, okay. And he <laughs> sure. sent it. And he sent it. And about a week later, MGM had bought it. And three months later, we were in Sicily filming. That's um, amazing. And that's it's really Joe. You know, he he really pushed hard to make it, to make it happen. I mean, even when he was told there was about a 5% chance that he would ever get through the whole film because of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but but he he did <laughs> i think that whole story is incredibly comforting to people especially at the fact that you know there, there's definitely a point where everyone goes through that where they're not sure if it's going to get made and and it really is that determination to keep going and you know you have to rely on someone else to to push things and then you, you sometimes it flips around and it's the other person and uh, it's, it's great to see the end result of where that's all led yeah and there was there was a lot of changes that happened during filming you know so i felt really lucky that i was there in nato and able to, you know, kind of respond when it was, you know, oh, we only have half the time we thought we had for the wars, we need to reduce it. Or, you know, we don't have an interior, we have to, or we don't have an exterior, we have to have an interior. That mm. was really thrilling to be able to be a part of that process. I can imagine there's nothing better, I think, sometimes than being on set and seeing how things work. Do you think for your next project, and I really hope you write again, because it's fantastic what you've delivered. Uh, um, do you think you learned so much from being on set rather than not being uh, for your screenwriting process? Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. It's so different from theater, um, which I'm sure everyone except me knew, but it, it was it was a total education watching um, from the, you know, the back row, watching the film get made um, was really absolutely incredible and really helpful in terms of trying to write uh, another screenplay. Just as a final question, if you could give yourself some advice to uh, when you started in your career, maybe when things were challenging, um, that advice for, for other filmmakers would be amazing. Wow. I don't know. I, you know, I feel like I've just started because th this is my first time. So this all feels so completely new to me. And I really only ever think about things in terms of like, the project that's right there, like what's happening? What am I, what am I, what's, what's the story that I'm trying to tell and how can I tell it, you know, the absolute best of my ability. And I have a very hard time kind of just letting things go and saying that's done. I'm moving on. Um, I kind of always want to keep working on things. And I loved, I love working on the same thing over and over and over again, trying to get it better and better and better. Um, which, you know, actually the, the, the national does that as well. <laughs> so that was a good, um, synchronicity there but i i really ha i don't know what i don't i don't i don't feel like i'm in a place to give any advice to anyone <laughs> it's so wonderfully <laughs> humble of you um we do have to let you go sadly we could talk for ages about your process i imagine you're going to direct films one day i can see it in you or feel it in you but good luck with whatever you do next all the best congrats with serrano it's amazing thank you so much thank, thank you, you so much Erica. Thank, it's you, been Erica. A pleasure. thank you thank you bye Bye. Remember, you can go out there and make your movie. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday as always. Go support indie films and go try and make your film. Why not? Take care. Bye bye.